Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Man United taking flight, Liverpool's runaway win, carry on at Arsenal, and Man City with the finest Foden since my trade table for takeoff. All that, plus Burnley fans getting plain stupid, adds up to a busy week in the football. We'll be rounding up all the news you need to know and what to look out for this weekend as the FA Cup joins the restart party. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Got our sweat on, listener. Wednesday, 24th of June. Thursday, 25th, maybe when you hear this. And it's been the hottest day of the year so far. Temperature about to climb even further as we welcome for a Totally Football Show special, Duncan Alexander. Hey, Duncan. Good evening, James. Good evening to you. We welcome back Benji Lanyando. Hey, Jimbo. All right, Benji. And we welcome to the Totally Football Show, Hugh Wozencroft of TalkSport. All right, Hugh. Hi, uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm very well. You're fresh from doing kickoff on TalkSport, taking the nation's temperature or something like that. Uh, <laughs> what were they say? What was the nation saying about Wednesday night's action? Uh, Liverpool fans very, very happy. Uh, I think Bournemouth fans quite dejected with their run of games, maybe fearing the worst at the moment. Villa fans happy with a point, but yeah, I think Manchester United. Actually, we've had it. We had a 50-50 split on whether. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is showing that he's going to be the man to bring the glory days back to Manchester United. Some of them have the faith and some of them doubt him strongly. Right. I'm going to be asking you, Hugh, as a bit of a Man United fan yourself, later on, how you feel, where you sit on that particular divide. But of course, the 24th of June is many things. And amongst them, Duncan, Leo Messi's birthday. Hurrah! He turned 33 on Wednesday. Could you constellate his greatness for us with some of your choicest numbers mm. well I tweeted a, a graph earlier today um, showing that he nearly managed to outscore Sunderland in the 2010s he didn't do it which is a shame for him but probably good for Sunderland and, and Netflix but he's got uh, as many Ballon d'Ors as uh, City and Chelsea have got league titles um, you know he's, he's scored at least 20 goals in every season going back to the uh, to the mid 2000s but what I would say is he's not perfect because, you know, he still never scored in the opening two minutes of a game, which for a man with as many goals as he has is quite weird. Um, it's an anomaly, isn't it? It is an anomaly. He's only won one Champions League in the last nine years as well, which usually leads on to a discussion about whether or not he should have left Barcelona and gone to play somewhere else where he would have won them. Yeah, he's still got fewer World Cup knockout goals than Matt Upson and Emil Heske as well. So he's got work Good to do in some areas of his game, but... Yeah, overall, I, I rate him as a footballer. So, Well, you're probably right, Duncan. He could still leave, of course. His contract famously ends at the end of every season. If he were to go, where would you like to see him play, Hugh? Uh, do you know what? I'm a big fan of Argentina. It's a country that I love to visit and I've spent a lot of time in a place called Victoria, a small town uh, with about 20,000 people. But it is near, about, well, I say it's near, it's about an, less than an hour's drive from Rosario, 
uh, which is Argentina's second biggest city, and it's Leo Messi's, uh, I guess it's his birthplace. And there's a famous club there, of course, where he started, I guess, his football journey, but never made it to the first team, of course, dragged off in the sort of um, great expectation style to uh, Barcelona, to this fantastic career with a great club in Spain. But it would be great to see him go back to his hometown and play for Newell's old boys, which I think would be a sensational way to end his career. Absolutely. Duncan? I'd probably invent a time machine because it seems as likely as Messi leaving Barcelona and uh, and make him play for Derby in 07-08 because could he keep Derby up in 07-08? I reckon it'll be close, but he could possibly do it. My answer, um, Jimbo, is Liberia, uh, the national team of Liberia. Bear with me because this gives me uh, an opportunity to crowbar in my favourite Wikipedia discovery in ages. Uh, If he played for Liberia, he'd be managed by Peter Butler, and that would embolden Peter Butler's claim to having the most exotic managerial career of any person ever to have played for West Ham, Southend and Halifax. After his average career as a midfielder, he went on to manage teams in Malaysia, Indonesia, Burma. He's managed the Thai police football team. He's managed the Singaporean Armed Forces football team. And he's now managing uh, Liberia, where he shares uh, an encampment, I think, with George Ware. So he goes to Liberia. Messi plays six aside with Peter Butler and, and George Ware. So that's my answer, Jimbo. Thank you. Wow, nice. Liberian goal. You could have that as a, as a sort of theme song. <laughs> Fabinho. Alexander-Arnold's on the move. But Fabinho! Goodness me! Well, in an empty stadium, it doesn't get what it deserves. Meantime, we've just come fresh, not just from kick-off on Talk Sport, but also from watching Liverpool's imperious display against Crystal Palace. A 4-0 victory Liverpool taking the field to the strains of Jerry and the Pacemakers without the usual choral accompaniment from the cop et al. But uh, none the worse for all that. They looked uh, back to their best, would you say? Yeah, they did. They, they looked uh, so comfortable. I think um, the intensity was back. Mohamed Salah came back to the game. Andrew Robertson was back in the starting lineup. It did make a difference. Um, Crystal Palace were pinned back for the entire match and it was it was you know for me it had the look of uh, uh, do you know what Liverpool looked great but I'm disappointed with Crystal Palace's approach to the match um, and I think that really played into their hands they sat so deep they never it, it, it looked like they were going for a nil-nil draw from the start they didn't want to leave their own half and I know they lost Wilfred Zaha early but I, I, I genuinely think that they allowed Liverpool to show their quality, which they did. You know, they're the European champions for a reason, and they showed it. I mean, just to back up that point, um, they are the first team in recorded Premier League history tonight to not have a single touch inside the opposition penalty area. Um, and I know Liverpool showed that you can score goals from long range in this game, but Palace were... I mean, they just didn't really do anything. Um, I think it was important that Liverpool kind of showed everyone why they're champions and why they're going to be champions because after the Everton game it did feel a bit like a box ticking exercise and it was a really entertaining game but you know, I think my favourite thing about it is it now means that Frank Lampard can win the title for Liverpool which I'm sure won't please Steven Gerrard that much but um, could happen. I thought um, Zaha going off early sort of stacked the deck in Liverpool's favour 
because it, it meant that Trent could push forward. Um, and that meant that, that Liverpool were the Liverpool that were at full speed before all of this happened. Um little curio from this game as well. That I saw, I just nicked this from somewhere off Twitter. I'm sorry, that person. But apparently against Everton, every single one of um, Liverpool's players was right-footed. And, and it, it was this person's opinion that, that uh, having two left-footed players in Salah and Robertson really changed things for them. Also, someone else, I think, commented on our Twitter thread saying that hmm. uh, eight... Yeah, Martin Jones says eight left-footed players appeared for Man City on Monday. Is that a record and is it deliberate? Well, it's just another front in the culture war, isn't it, of, of left versus right, you know, playing <laughs> out in, in, in the Premier League. Is that a record, Duncan? Um, I don't have the numbers to hand, but it's going to be up there, yeah. I mean, there's been lots of occasions where teams have played 11 right-foot players, you'd expect, um, but left-foot it is. But then, you know, City are not going to drop Kevin De Bruyne because he's right-footed, are they? So, <laughs> What I would say on that is I think it's been quite deliberate from Pep Guardiola to make sure that there's a balance to his side. I'm not sure he wanted to necessarily start with eight left-footed players, but I think he's always wanted to make sure his squad, there's a big, pretty big selection, you know, half a dozen at least players who are left-footed to to sort of balance his play on the pitch. So eventually it was going to happen, I think. There were some pretty special goals at Anfield, but what was your favourite? My favourite goal tonight? Well, let me tell you, I was sitting alongside Ray Houghton and his favourite goal tonight, and I'll, I'll do it from his perspective because at least he knows what he's talking about, was Mane's goal, the fourth goal, because of the fact that it was a team goal. I mean, he felt like that was the one where Liverpool really put play together, executed it. And he said when Mane went through on goal, he had absolutely no doubt that he'd roll it in the back of the net. And and actually, just the languid nature of the finish from Mane, the fact that it was it was a bit like a training exercise. It was like he was playing football with his kids in the garden. It was it was like he didn't even try and score. He just thought, oh, let me just... I'll just tap this in. Don't worry about the fact there's a goalkeeper between me and the goal. And uh, even though the others looked more spectacular, it probably was the best goal from Liverpool's perspective, from a coaching perspective. I mean, there were quite a few Crystal Palace fans online saying that a lot of goal of the season contenders tend to be scored against Wayne Hennessy and they never feel that confident when he's in goal. I mean, it's interesting. This fixed to last year, which Liverpool won 4-3. People might remember that Julian Speroni had to play for Palace. He's actually the last man born in the 1970s to ever play in the Premier League and I don't imagine that will ever get beaten. Um, and you might argue that he could have done with the game tonight, but alas mm. not. When you hear stats like that, it's time to move on. So we will. Uh, Liverpool will be champions of the Premier League Thursday night if Man City drop points at Stamford Bridge because, of course, that's Thursday's big game. Chelsea, Man City. Will they? Well, City looked in pretty special form themselves on Monday when they took on Burnley, picking up their third 5-0 victory in a row against the Clarets. We'll discuss the game in a second or two, but Burnley are a team with some issues right now, not least the decision taken by Burnley supporter Jake Heppel to hire a plane with the message White Lives Matter and fly it over the Etihad in and around kickoff. Jake Heppel explains, under a picture of him with the former English Defence League leader Tommy Robinson, that he is not a racist. This banner was actually inspired by the Black Lives Movement, says Jake. I believe that it's also important to acknowledge that white lives matter too. That's all we were trying to say. My word. Burnley captain Ben Mee spoke of his embarrassment and the players' uh, unhappiness at seeing the banner when they took the field and also hinted that they'd known that it was on the way. It's not the only issue, as I mentioned, that Burnley are facing right now. So let's hear briefly now from Burnley's correspondent for The Athletic, Andy Jones. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Get 40% off your annual subscription and in-depth coverage of each and every Premier League club when you subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash totally40. So first of all, just quickly on the on the plane, and the club has been pretty emphatic uh, in its response, before they found out who was responsible, they were talking of a life ban. Is is that still their their um, their position? Yeah, I mean Burnley have been brilliant, really, in the response to the really shameful, you know, banner that was thrown thrown over the Etihad. Um, you know, they, they released a statement at half time, um, and Ben Mee was was excellent after the match, and uh, you know the way he spoke, and and the statements that that have been made since from from the chairman and and the CEO and. You know the the supporters have have come together as well. Uh, I think they're putting a video together um, to be shown before the Watford game because those views don't reflect the the town and, and the football club. Um, and and Burnley have been very forthright in in making sure that that's known. Um, and and everyone's certain of that. Um, so the, the response has been excellent. And you know the the punishments for for those that are involved will, you know, be dished out and and, and rightly so. Right. I mean, it was sad to see it happen. It's nice to see the club responding in this way, as indeed it's been terrific to see uh, the Premier League support uh, for this whole movement. Just touching on one or two of the other issues surrounding Burnley right now, a team who didn't actually name their full complement of substitutes for the game at the Etihad. You have this curious situation where players who are out of contract are all... But they're all kind of taking flight themselves. Why is that happening at Burnley and not, with the exception of, I think, just Pedro at Chelsea, at other clubs? Well, I think Burnley sort of got themselves into a bit of a sticky position um, because they didn't sort of address these contract issues earlier. And that was partly down to the COVID-19, which obviously no one could foresee. Um, Dice has spoken about, you know, he he alerted the board to to the situations he wanted sort of sorted in the last 12 to 18 months. But um, unfortunately, in in Burnley's case, the board weren't able to react quickly enough, really. and it's a case of a lot of the majority of the players were offered sort of short term uh, contracts and, and with no sort of you know guarantee of a, a longer term contract, you then put in that position where um you know if you do get an injury, especially with just the ages of 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 the players who, who have departed, um the likes of Aaron Lennon and, and Joe I mean Joe Hart would wouldn't have played. Um but I, I don't think from from sort of the understanding and reports that he was offered a, a short term. Um, but the finances involved are barely they're so tightly run, um, and and that's why they they are so well run. But yeah, it's it's just a really difficult difficult situation, and I think you know Daisha would have liked to have you know kept them, a number of them at least for the the sort of running. But unfortunately, it's just Phil Bardsley and and, and the other four um, will depart. The uh, league position is comfortable enough that this shouldn't have too much impact on your future in in, in terms of you know. Premier League and that you, you, you're on the fringes almost of the, of the European positions but in terms of economically surviving what we've been through and the prospects for next season potentially without fans at least at the start are Burnley in a particularly delicate position? Well they were they were fortunate in that because they've they've been so well run over the past number of years and um, that they had sort of cash reserves they've, they've posted the profits in three consecutive seasons and 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 you know financially are very very healthy so while this is sort of, you know, obviously as it's affected every every single club, um, but they've because of the f- strong financial position they've put themselves in, 
they are okay. It's the uncertainty of of the transfer window, as as you sort of, I mean, just generally, no club really knows what you know players are going to be available, what prices are going to be about, and because Burnley have, have lost you know a, a number of squad players that they they're going to have to go out and, and replenish, and it's you know it's whether the funds are there, um, and, and at the moment it, it's not quite clear with Burnley they're never going to spend. Loads and loads of money, um, that that's that's quite obvious from from just looking back at the, the business over the seasons, and everyone knows that you know they are financially very prudent, um, and they they have to be prudent again. But there is a, there is a an emphasis on this window that it is a case of you've got to replenish the squad before you even look to add to it. Um, so there is a a bit of pressure on on this upcoming window in the recruitment department. They've Mike Riggs come in over eighteen months ago now, I think, and. You know, they over lockdown they they've been really hard at work. The the club have in, increased the staff size in that in that department. Um so they will have been putting a lot of work in to try and identify those players who may, you know, fit into the Burnley model in terms of, you know, the the style of player, you know, wage structure, price, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it will be an inter- interesting to see how how it how it all comes together in, in the transfer market for Burnley because it's they, they they sort of do need to be busy. Andy, thank you so much for uh, for joining us this evening on on the show, and uh, yeah, best of luck for the end of the season. You might get a call up at this rate. <laughs> Who knows? Andy Jones of the Athletic. Uh, Burnley are going to be taking on Watford on uh, Thursday evening. It's nice the point he makes that they don't reflect the views of of the club or, or people in Burnley, but I mean they obviously do because. This fellow hired the plane and, and apparently 60 of his friends chipped in the £600, which is what it costs to hire a plane with a banner. If you, I, I thought that was quite a reasonable amount, 600 quid to fly your banner. But it, obviously they do reflect. And I don't know whether it's a good thing that these people then make themselves so obvious by flying a big flag around the stadium saying, I am a racist, come and educate me. Or whether it, we should be just totally depressed that people have still not understood the whole message. I mean, I think that was the most... It's, it's arguable for me this was the most depressing thing of, of all because until this point you could have still argued in some cases that people just didn't understand but this wasn't that this is people just they don't want to understand and it's just do you know what I mean it was it was a, a willful decision to deliberately you know target the the Black Lives Matter kind of movement with with that and it, it's it you know reflects what a lot of people are saying online and it's it, it was just completely you could see with the players you know that as we said they they were told before kickoff so there's this weird, weird scenario when they're you know doing the pre-match stuff and, and taking the knee when they knew that a plane was coming and presumably they could hear it in the distance and, and there it is it's you know really kind of surreal depressing episode I would agree with with Duncan in that it's very clear that people do understand what it's all about and it's just a form of white supremacy. So it's essentially just trying to ridicule, trying to stop an actual debate coming to fruition over the issue Black Lives Matter. So um, it's very clear they, they, they knew what they were doing. And it's just sad that Burnley got roped into it, to be perfectly honest. From the shows that we've done on TalkSport, um, it's one of those things where a lot of people in the public will have had to challenge themselves over the last you know month or so and will have been challenged in terms of what they consume on TV or on the radio. And um, some people find it very difficult to try and change their mindset and break the mould of, of how they've always perceived the world. And we know that over various issues, not just this. This is just one of those things where 
it's weird to be called, you know, a race baiter or that I'm in, you know, I want a race war, I think, has been levied at me just because I've basically tried to explain why there's a need for social injustice in the um, African and Caribbean community in the UK and also, you know, in the US and in other parts of the world. So for me, that's the, the hardest bit. But, um, you know, for me, one of the weird things is thinking about football generally. You know, we see all the players down on one knee. And it's easy to say Black Lives Matter when it comes to players out on the pitch. But we know that the sport has a massive issue in terms of representation off the field of play, in terms of those black players making it from the pitch to the boardroom, to sort of important roles within a football club, to coaching staff. You know, we know that the, the, the football does have an issue with black people. You can't get around it. You know, mm. they had an issue with them playing. Then they accepted that. They haven't yet accepted them in any other real role in football except for, except for out on the pitch. That is a, a major issue. It's great that Burnley do stuff in the in the community, but their board is exclusively male, eight members. And their board is exclusively white. So I would ask the question, you know, what about the, the big positions in your football club? As, as And again, there is no issue for me with Burnley. I'm just using them as an example here because they're in the middle of it. Premier League football clubs and football clubs across Europe will, will tell you a similar story. You know, why is it we can't accept, you know, black people in the boardroom? Because it's not a coincidence. There are too many football clubs in Europe for it to be a coincidence. Well, of course, in the sports broadcasting industry as well, which I know is something that you've been working on, and we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later on. But uh, Man City... Taking on Chelsea then with Liverpool poised to take the title if they drop points in the clash with Frank Lampard's side. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what City did on Monday after this. Deforestation is real and it's an issue that's affecting North London. Did you know an area the size of a football pitch is being destroyed twice a week by Arsenal's defence? That's right. Hector Bellerin has pledged to donate 3,000 trees for every game Arsenal win. But Arsenal can't defend their own goal, let alone the planet. That's why Paddy Power are donating not 3,000, but 6,000 trees every time Arsenal don't win. <laughs> Seems more likely. So come on, Arsenal. If you can't bring home the three points, let us bring home the tree points. Paddy Power. 18plusbegambleaware.org Hey, listener. As a follower of the Totally Football Show, you probably have a pretty decent amount of football know-how. What if there was a way of putting that knowledge to use? Well, there is. It's Football Index, a platform for betting on the future of the world's top footballers. Use all the information you've been sitting on since football went on hiatus. And now that it's back, build a portfolio of the players you think will rise in value and win dividends when those players perform on the pitch or in the media. You can download Football Index today on Android and iOS. And when you sign up using the offer code TFS20, you'll get a seven-day £500 money-back guarantee. That's the promo code TFS20. Terms and conditions are available at trade.footballindex.co.uk slash money-back guarantee. It's 18 plus only, begambleaware.org, and please trade responsibly. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. OK, Monday night then, Man City 5, Burnley 0. And Pepper made eight changes, peppering his team with left-footed players who tore up the Clarets. Two goals from Rio Murray's, two from Phil Foden. Oh, and a very special no-look pass as well for the fifth. Just a quick caveat about um, Phil Foden to some extent. That... The I still, you know, a lot of people are saying that this proves that he's right to stay at City. There's a lot to be said for that. 
I do sometimes wonder though that in this city team, when they are so exceptionally good, could, you know, if you just put sort of someone like Junior Stanislas in the middle of it, uh, he'd probably look unbelievable as well. And I kind of, I still think I'd like to see him play among worse players because that's what it'll be like when he plays for England. Okay, a lot of people saying that England should be built around him at the moment. Benji John Sands says that uh, England may be the big beneficiaries of Euro 20 being pushed back 12 months because they can really construct the team around Phil Foden. I mean, the thing I like about Foden is he, he turned 20 at the end of May, so less than a month ago, um, and he's already got three times as many goals in his 20s as he did as a teenager, which is good because it kind of proves Pep right. You know, I, I wait till you're in your 20s, son, and then you'll, be a, then you'll be a player, so that's quite good. But, yeah, I think... I, I'm willing to state that I think he's better than Junior Stanislas and I think that, yeah, I think he'll be a key player for City. City in general have been looking very impressive. Of all the teams since the restart happened, they've been the most consistently impressive, no? Yeah, they've already got more uh, goals since the restart than Sheffield United have in the whole of 2020, which possibly says more about how they're struggling to, to maintain their first half of the season. But, you know, we, we kind of suspected that that once the title was out of reach and, you know, basically doesn't really matter where City finish given the potential issues with uh, with UEFA, they're free to, you know, play as they like now. And I think this won't be the last time we see them score five or more goals towards the, uh, to the end of the season. Right. They won't be doing it with Sergio Aguero, though, who has gone off to Barcelona and had an operation. And Gabriel Jesus may be called to fill in for him, or it might be Sterling, or it might, says Pep, be Gundogan. So have some of that Premier League competition. Are they going to drop points then against a Chelsea team who have had three wins in a row in all competitions, if you count back over the last three months? I get the feeling that City will drop points just because of the big hint that Pep Guardiola gave that the FA Cup game at the weekend is more important to him, even though they're playing Newcastle. It seems like he knows and the world knows that the Premier League title is gone. A top four place is secured. So, you know, eight changes against Burnley. We'll probably see a raft of changes again for, for Chelsea and then for the Newcastle game. And I think if, you, if you're constantly changing, as good as the squad is, eventually a good side is going to get at least a point against you. And I think Chelsea, knowing that the pressure is on from Wolves and Manchester United, will, will, will I think they'll get a point. Right. Well, we'll talk more about those FA Cup quarterfinals a little bit later on. But uh, before Liverpool kicked off against Crystal Palace, we were all over a selection of Wednesday's other games, which featured Benji, the bottom three in action. Uh, Villa, West Ham's rivals Villa, they got a point at Newcastle. Bournemouth got diddly squat at Wolves. And same for Norwich, who were at home to Everton. They both had 1-0 defeats. That Norwich-Everton game, by the way, wreaking havoc across the BBC's schedules... BBC had uh, managed to acquire this game for free-to-air transmission, but then split it across BBC Two and BBC One, knocking Eggheads, Thatcher, a very British revolution, and The One Show out of their schedule. Extraordinary. Why couldn't they just run it on one... I've one, got to um, say, it was, it was really weird in the TalkSport studio, of course, when it got to half-time, and I looked up and I was like, are they running some sort of half-time trail about Margaret Thatcher here? This is odd for a Premier League football match. And I was like, this is quite long in hindsight. And then I suddenly mm. realised that they'd swapped channels and I, I was embarrassed to say the least. Right. Mm. Of course, the right game to be watching earlier on was Man United's 3-0 win over Sheffield United, which featured some pretty bold stuff 
From Undefined manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he picked Pogba and Fernandes together for the first time and he picked Rashford and Martial and Greenwood as well. And then he then went and made a quintuple substitution. And above all, Man United looked absolutely fantastic. Now, Hugh, earlier on, you were saying that some people don't think etc. and so on, but others do. But when you watch this, they look really good, didn't they? What do you think? They do look really good. And I've got to say that it does look like the foundations are coming into place under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. We had a couple of callers on the show, and I think they make a, a good point. You had a couple of great players in there. Maybe another striker, a different centre-back. Jaden Sancho looks likely. And suddenly you've got yourself a, a very good team. And if they can continue to play like they did tonight with some better players, then you're looking at a serious, a pretty serious team. Um, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be proven in time to be a foundations-type manager. He will be seen to lay the groundwork for one of the big managers in Europe in the next two years, maybe a couple of years from now, 18 months from now, to come in and try and take the team to another level. I think if he gets them to the top four, that that is fantastic for him. That's fantastic for him. That's fantastic for the club. He's, he's got Marcus Rashford playing. It looks like he's turning Anthony Martial into a goal scorer and a proper centre forward. The defence looks better and he looks like Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes could make a, a pretty lethal combination in central midfield. And he looks like he could keep Paul Pogba, which I think a lot of people would be really surprised about. Um, and if he could do that, I think that would be massive for the club. Um, but will he take them onto Premier League titles and will he take them onto European Cups in the future? Uh, I still have my reservations. OK, well, they're just two points now. Off Chelsea in fourth place. So Wolves, who, as we mentioned, beat Bournemouth, but looking really good. And Paul Pogba gliding around like you know, like the Pogba of yore. Fantastic to watch. It, this game against Sheffield United, viewed with memories of how things were three months ago, did look like a tough test. Of course, it proved anything but, which is also something to do with the fact that Sheffield United haven't really come back for the restart. Yeah, I mean, before football came back, Sheffield United were the only team to have ever won top flight games in June. They were the, the masters of summer back in 1947. But um, yeah, since they've come back, they've failed to score, obviously, um, in their three games. And they've only had three well, shots except on target. Of course they did. Yes, there was the, the ghost goal. Uh, to be Hawkeye. honest, Aston Villa scored that for them. So I don't think they can take credit. Yeah, I mean, after that game, uh, Chris Wilder didn't make that much of a song and dance about losing out on that goal but it's actually looking you know like a pretty big blow to Sheffield United um you know and their dreams of kind of top six are looking uh are looking pretty faint now so um yeah not great they didn't really I mean they did all right after the first drinks break in the first half for about 10 minutes um has been quite interesting actually quite a lot of games we've seen that first half drinks break managers have obviously tweaked a few things and it really has changed the course of of the match um but they weren't able to really you know do much with it so other Wednesday games who saw what what were you all over Duncan uh I was watching Wolves Bournemouth oh yeah cherries no Mm. shots what else happened or didn't well, I think Bournemouth not having a shot was um, not great for them. They had an XG uh, of 0.11, which is not good. I mean, you know, everyone knows that their defence hasn't been great, but their attacks basically kept them up the last few seasons. Um, you know, the fact that Ryan Fraser has decided he doesn't want to play for the club anymore is a, is a blow. And they really do look like the team that are being sucked down. And, you know, it still feels to me like Villa could escape. 
I think. But I feel like Bournemouth and you know are going to join Norwich in okay. in relegation. Mm. Wolves goal coming from Raúl Jiménez, of course. Benji, you watched Newcastle's one-one draw with Aston Villa. Both goals scored by and created by substitutes. Um, Carroll actually changed the game when he came on. He, he played as a sort of number ten, and he, he does this sometimes when he he sort of basically roams around outside of the penalty area, just being sort of stronger than everyone and winning the ball. And it was a great pass from from Carroll on the right wing that played in Bale for Newcastle's goal. He's got um, Andy Carroll's got a silly beard, by the way. Um, so he he's got a sort of handlebar moustache. Yeah, exactly. Handlebar moustache connected to big sort of mutton chop sideburns, sort of like full beard coverage apart from the chin, um, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was great. Um, anyway, after the goal, Villa woke up, which is sort of a bit concerning because it shouldn't take going 1-0 down for a team in a relegation battle to get any urgency. Um, and it, yeah, it was another sub, Conor Hurahan, who, who made the difference for them with a series of Really brilliant deliveries. He's a fantastic set-piece taker. I hadn't sort of spotted that before. And, it, and his corner was um, nodded in by El Mohamedi. I think probably the most notable thing in this game is that on the commentary, Robbie Savage said something incredibly, actually, that was, it was both interesting and, and really like quite humble. Um, so he was talking about when he was at Birmingham City under Steve Bruce. And, and he said that Bruce was very clear that the job of the less talented players like Savage was to get the ball and pass it to more talented players like Christoph Dugary at the time. And really, that is what this Newcastle team does. They get the ball and they give it to Alan San Maximum. And he sort of, as usual, was on a on a different planet to pretty much everyone else on the pitch, bar maybe Grealish. Grealish is also sporting some interesting hair arrangements right now. Uh, well, Benji, how concerned are you then with the situation down at the bottom where Watford are on 28 points, then your lot, West Ham, are on 27 alongside Bournemouth and Villa? And probably two of those three are going to go down. Yeah, I mean, I think the only way West Ham don't go down is if we're sort of somehow the fourth crappest team in the league. Um, mm. And I think our fixtures are slightly favourable when compared to Villas, certainly Brighton's, even though I think they might have pulled themselves out of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if you, you want to sort of move into talking about West Ham last night because that was, you know, pretty awful. Right, this is West Ham's trip to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which took place on Tuesday evening and resulted in a 2-0 loss for David Moyes' side. Tell us your reaction. Oh, man. I mean, the whole the whole team is a bit weird at the moment. And, th- and this is after Moyes has had the pre-season that he'd previously never had as a West Ham manager. You know, there's lo- lots of square pegs and round holes. You've got Antonio up front. You've got Noble playing as a number 10. Yeah, bless him. He's, he's absolutely not a number 10. Fornals was playing as a sort of underlapping winger. None of it made sense. And I think there's a real stubbornness with Moyes too. He's only made five substitutes over the last two games. I sort of think when you take a step back, ultimately most of our players are crap. And and if you haven't got a great squad, you, you need one of two things, either like a really drilled in identity like Sheffield United or Brighton, or you need some game changes. And actually, you know, over the last five years, we've had them in, in Arnautovic and Paye and, and even Andy Carroll, we've seen tonight, you know, for better or worse, he can change a game. Last year, when we beat Spurs away, it was because of a moment of magic from Arnautovic on the wing who crossed it for Antonio. And I just think with, with West Ham's current team, I just don't know where that magic's going to come from. Spurs, meanwhile moved up a little bit closer uh, to the Champions League positions prospectively with a 2-0 win and also got a goal from Harry Kane as if to underline the incredible productivity of centre-forwards when Jose Mourinho is their manager. <laughs> he raced downfield onto a lovely ball 
from Son Hyung Min, and 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 ended his uh, long long wait for a scoring strike. Better from Spurs, or actually not that great a game, and just they were playing West Ham. Uh, I personally think uh, it was a slight improvement. I thought Lacelso was pretty good last night, and I think Spurs fans will be happy with that. But there's a lot of it's very game to game with Spurs at the moment. I don't think Jose knows the best team. I don't think the players are particularly comfortable. And with, of course, the changes we've seen because of coronavirus, the number of changes, the number of substitutions, and of course, game to game, um, I, I don't think it was that easy given the changes for them to sort of hit a rhythm. I do think West Ham helped. Um, it's another one of those sides that I don't, I just don't, I just don't get their approach. It doesn't look like they're trying to win the match. And in their position, I think they need to try and win games. Um, but when I saw a midfield of Noble, Suchek and Rice, I couldn't really understand where the creativity was going to come from. I didn't know where the goals were going to come from. Mikel Antonio works hard, but he, he, he didn't hold the ball up at all. And the goal that Kane scored, I mean, you might as well not have the two centre-halves there at all. Just let him run free. You know, I think that was pretty much a better goal-scoring opportunity than the penalty in terms of uh, the fact that Harry Kane could have done whatever he wanted. Well, it's like one of those old um, North American penalties, isn't it? You're allowed to run through on the goalkeeper and see if you can finish <laughs> MLS shootout. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, when Moyes came back to West Ham, he had that famous quote when he said, I win games, that's what I do. Um, and since he said that, he's got a win rate of 17%, which isn't ideal, really. So. It's actually worse than Avram Grant did in his spell at the club. Just, mm. you know, put things in perspective. It's also sort of notable that we seem to be making good players worse. That, you know, both both Pablo Fornells and Felipe Anderson have done nothing in these first few games. And that's, that's £60 million of nothing. Um, Jeremy Ngakia, who's this sort of bright young right back, uh, has, has clearly decided that West Ham isn't good enough for him. You know, he, we played him in our first game back and he's now off, despite the fact that we've made him a new contract offer. So, yeah. Looks a bit. It looks a bit grim for West Ham at the moment, and I think it, it feels very West Ham to sort of come back from a global apocalypse just in time to to get relegated. It, it's going to most likely be the the totally football league show for us next year. I would say as well that I think you're right on that. West Ham have fitted into that mould of, in a lot of football fans' minds, of too good to go down. They'll have enough, but in fact, you look at them on the pitch and you, and you, you can't really see where the points are going to come from. No, and I think our, our fullback positions completely sum it up. I mean, arguably, it's it's, a, it's the most important position in modern football after your your front two or three. And if you were to sort of mush all of our fullbacks together, you'd have a world beater. But as it is, you've got sort of Zabaleta's too old, and Gakia's too young. Cresswell can't attack, and Masuaku can't defend. So there is there are some real holes in this team, and they are being exposed as they should be. Mm, Benji, that does sound a little bit worrying. Also on Tuesday, just to quickly mention, there was a nil-nil between Leicester and Brighton, which wasn't quite as uneventful as it sounds because Brighton had an early penalty saved. It was one of only three shots on target, but there was a truly bizarre moment from Brighton goalkeeper Matt Ryan. He ran out to hurl the ball downfield, but forgot to let go of the ball and almost threw it back into his own net. It didn't go in. Uh, Benji, I believe you were also quite excited about Tarek Lamptey in this game. Is that right? Briefly, why? Yeah, really impressed. He He, he started the season at Chelsea and turn them down and you know I think he he realized that the emergence of Reese James made it pretty unlikely that he'd, he'd break through um and he was really good and but having said that I'm sort of getting a bit annoyed with all these really good English right backs existing at the same time you know there was another one on the pitch in James Justin who looks really good and we've talked about Ngakio and John Joe Kenny's looking great for Schalke and that's on top of 
Alexander-Arnold and Wan-Bissaka. Kieran Trippier is playing every other game for sort of one of the best defences in Europe. Rhys James, mm. Max Ahrens, Ensley, Maitland-Nars, and sort of lest we forget, Carl Walker's still knocking about. We've got basically a whole team right. of excellent right-backs, and, and okay. I, I think we need to switch flanks. We need Pep Guardiola coach in England, and he'll have eight right-backs in his team. Perfect. <laughs> Brilliant. Stranger things have happened to you. Anyway, that was Leicester-Brighton 0-0. Leicester have had one win in seven, I believe. Uh, in other football news, listener, you will have been excited to read that Neil Warnock is right back in management. The 71-year-old has taken charge of Borough after they sacked Jonathan Woodgate. They're only just outside the relegation zone, Borough, on goal difference with eight games to go. And they are now the 16th club that Neil has managed in his long and illustrious career. Do you know what the first one was? Neil Warnock's first club, where the legend began? Gainsborough Trinity. Yes, Duncan. Gainsborough Trinity. Who had Gainsborough Trinity? Well, they're the main team at Gainsborough, which is uh, okay. up on the northeast-ish coast up there. All right. Anyway, if you'd like to know more about that kind of thing, Totally Football League Show is your destination. They'll be discussing his return to management this week. In this Totally Football Show, meantime, we're going to be talking about very shortly what else is happening this weekend in the Premier League and also those uh, FA Cup quarterfinals. Plus, James Hallcastle will be joining us to tell us all about the crazy events in Atalanta Lazio. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hugh, among your many, the many hats that you wear, is one of board member on the Black Collective of Media in Sport, a.k.a. BCOMS, uh, which actively works to develop opportunities for BAME people within the sports media industry. Now, this is something which is kind of obvious to anyone who works in the sports media industry that outside of former players, there's not much representation. But how do you actively work to develop that, can I ask? Uh, well, let's take what we're doing at the moment. So uh, we sent an open letter. You might have seen it in the papers uh, recently. It was uh, countersigned by the likes of David Beckham, Maggie Alfonsi, Rugby World Cup winner. Um, who else was on there? We had uh, Christine Harugu as well, Olympic champion. Uh, quite a few major sports people who are behind, of course, the work that we're doing, which is to try and make... I know it sounds weird, but try and make uh, organisations in sports media at the moment a a adopt a pattern of behaviour. So what we have seen is, of course, left to their own devices over the last, you know, some companies 70 years, others 20, 30 years. Um, clearly, they haven't been able to produce representation across their newsrooms, as it were, in sports. So um, we're here to try and encourage them, uh, try and help them get staff we develop people we find youngsters we put on master classes we mentor people and of course we have those high level conversations with people who make the decisions in sports media organizations to just say these are the people that want to work in your industry and this is how you can tap into them so we try and try and put the two together but it, but when it comes to it the the most serious work i think is actually supporting bame people in the industry many of whom are having uh, difficult times in their careers it's something that we think about, obviously, totally, because we're not the most diverse group of people. But then it's something that we kind of inherit from the industry because there aren't that many people around that, you know, we can choose from almost. Well, that's your first mistake. 
That's your first mistake. Yeah. And that's what we hear a lot from the industry, right? There aren't that many people out there that, that are interested in this. But if you look at YouTube, you look at all the YouTubers in sport, the diversity is flipped on its head. So the people that are prepared to make their own sports media content and spending their own money to do it, many of whom we know now as virtually household names when it comes to, you know, online digital sports media, um, they're doing it themselves. They've made the opportunities because they haven't got them from major organizations. There are plenty of people out there. There are plenty of journalists. There are plenty of broadcasters. No one wants to be perceived as working at an organization which is has either overt racism or institutionalized racism. So you get a lot of um, I, what I can only call as lazy excuses that are handed down from bosses to bosses to bosses to bosses. I take over as an editor or an executive and I'm told we have difficulty engaging with this community because they're not there. And the next person just takes it as read and they move on. And then when they leave that job, they pass it on to their successor. And, um, you know, it, it's just not true. I can tell you there's hundreds of people who happily come on your show. who've got good knowledge of media who'd be great broadcasters Um and I think organizations, major organizations need to wake up to that as well. We have a lot of this uh, sort of endeavor to get kids in. You know, we're, we're going to Stratford or we're going to go to Newham or Tower Hamlets or the, we're going to go into Birmingham or Moss Side and we're going to find the next generation of BAME sports journalists. And there's plenty already working in the industry. And what those companies are really trying to do is populate their organizations with people who change their statistics but don't change their organization. So they want to populate it from the bottom up, basically, get people at the lower end of the business on the cheaper salaries to do, I guess, the most menial, less, the least important jobs at the business. And we will change the demographic of the organization because when it comes out with our diversity report, we'll, we'll have changed and the representation will be massive. But a bit like football, we won't have any people who are managers or chief execs or in those major positions who are from those communities. And you know, it gets to the point where you've just got to say it's obviously deliberate. You know, it's this this industry is not immune from what all other industries face, which is institutionalized racism. And it needs to it has a journey to take. We're hopefully on that road. But people need to be aware of what the issue is. And we need to be open about that. The issue exists. You know, it's not it, it's just too easy to say, where are these people? Because what have you done to find them? You know, and, and the and, and, and ultimately, I always say about organizations if they need to change something, they'll invest in it. If the podcast didn't sound good enough, you'd invest in better equipment. If you can get the best contributors, you'd invest in paying them more or you try and find a sponsor and you'd actively go after that until you got the product that you wanted. And really, the industry hasn't reached a point where diversity is something that it truly wants, that it truly will invest in. Many organizations haven't seen it as a, any, a thing that will improve their bottom line. And that's something that not just this industry, but plenty of other industries, we, we need to get around because if it's law or if it's business or if it's finance, people will come to you with a heart of gold and say, we really want to change this thing. They'll go and speak to the finance people and say, well, do you really want to change the, the people that already listen? Do you really want to get a different group? You know, you might upset the sponsors or the advertisers and suddenly you, you end up 20 years later. With nothing having happened. With nothing having happened, exactly. Mm. Do you think we're in that kind of paradigm at the moment or do you think things are actually happening? Um, I mean, I, I'm generally a cynic by nature. Um, I think this is a period of awareness. So more people will become aware of the issues, but I don't think more people will act on them. Uh, and I know that sounds like a really weird thing to say, 
But it's a bit like saying a lot of people will have realised what Black Lives Matter stands for over the last period of time. But everyone's not going to go to work the next day and say to their boss, why haven't we got more black people working in the office? You know, why are all the cleaners from a certain part of the world? Why are all the executives male? You know, what they won't start breaking down the boundaries at the place they work, because let's be honest, that's a difficult thing for anyone to do. You know, are you going to go to BT and start saying to Simon Green, you know, what's going on with the diversity? You know, you're not going to, uh, this is nothing against you. And I'm sure, you know, you've got Listen, a heart of gold I'm as well. I'm banging but... on that door. I've said more bald <laughs> presenters. Why am I the only hairless presenter? <laughs> Um, and I, I think, you know, those are the things that we will find difficult to do. But equally, the more people have an understanding, the higher they go in the chain, the more they get into positions of control and power in an in a, in, a, in an organisation. I think if they have that awareness, then it will feed into the work that they do. So what we're thinking is people who are 20, 30, 40 years old, whose eyes are being opened, um, hopefully they will think that soon there will be... And listen, we've seen organisations have pledged 100 million here, 30 million here, 10 million here or there. We're going to work on diversity. We're going to change things. But they won't put that money into the hands of the people from those communities. Do you see what I mean? So that we're on a journey where we'll spend £100 million on diversity, but all our white executives will spend that money. They will make the decisions on where those programmes are made and who buy. And in that, in that regard, the community is still hamstrung to you know, white executives. And, and that's just how our, organi- our, our industry works. Hmm. Thanks for that, because um, it is a... No, no, <laughs> it's it, not very it entertaining. <laughs> no, no, it's it is entertaining. I bet it is quite interesting because I'm asking a, a stupid and lazy question, and you're um, giving me the answer. So let me ask some more stupid and lazy questions after this about <laughs> the Premier League weekend and those FA Cup quarterfinals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad free on the Athletic app. This is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. In the Prem this weekend, a couple of big games at the bottom. Aston Villa taking on Wolves and Watford up against Southampton. Corresponding fixture last season saw Shane Long scoring the fastest goal in Premier League history. 7.69 seconds. It sounded like this. The top six continue their own battle for places in the Champions League or the Europa League, but there's a chance here immediately. Shane Long, what a start! Less than 10 seconds played. For that, though, Thursday sees that Chelsea Man City game, Burnley taking on Watford, hmm, and Saints Arsenal. Exciting times, these, of course, for Arsenal. Uh, they're building for the future with checks, notes, new deals for Cedric and David Luiz. David Louise. Now, okay, so this was all over social media on Wednesday, but there's clearly a rationale for this. Arsenal aren't mad. What is the thinking behind offering David Louise, especially after the example he gave of his game-changing skills the other day, a new one-year deal? Uh, well, I think it's probably a slightly defensive move in that it's easy to sign players you already kind of own rather than try and persuade other players at other clubs to come to your club that isn't particularly attractive at the moment. I mean, the Cedric Suarez deal is incredible. He's, he's come on loan. He's not even played for Arsenal and they've given him a four-year deal, which I've never seen before, ever. And he's um, 29. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think Arsenal fans are, are massively impressed, but I think it's a bit of a wake-up call that 
you know, they they can't really attract big players anymore. And the big players they do have, you know, Aubameyang's in his 30s, Lacazette's getting on, Ozil's in his 30s. It's, you know, the, the next couple of years are going to be crucial uh, to see how, if they can rebuild or whether they do kind of spiral further down, which is looking more and more possible. Isn't the thing with David Luiz that he's kind of good to have about the place? That he's considered a, a good character and if Arteta's going to rebuild with a bunch of youngsters, they need some people at least to have experience and maybe that's what Luiz and Cedric Suarez represent. Yep, that, that, that sounds a very convincing argument. Excellent. Anyway, Arsenal will be at St Mary's on Thursday taking on Southampton. Danny Ings on 16 goals in the Premier League for this season. And oh, he's got two in no three in two in his Premier League games against Gunners. Okay, now also this weekend it's the FA Cup quarterfinals, which also involve Arsenal. Uh, quarterfinals are Saturday Norwich against Man United, Sunday then Sheffield United against Arsenal, Leicester against Chelsea, and Newcastle against Man City. Who do you boys fancy? Which of those fixtures are you really looking out for? I'd go for Leicester against Chelsea as an interesting one. I don't think Brendan Rodgers' side have come back necessarily themselves. It'll be really interesting to see how Chelsea react, no matter what happens against Manchester City. Uh, if they win the game, you know, is it going to go to their heads? Or if they lose, I don't know if they'll lose badly. But but I think the cup means something to Frank Lampard. Of course, it means something to Chelsea with all the the cups they've won as well. So... It's going to be an interesting one. Brendan Rodgers against Frank Lampard. I think Brendan Rodgers needs a reaction from his players. They don't look like they've really woken up um, in terms of Project Restart. And and I think a cup game where look you're you're not expected to win the cup, but in Leicester City, I think they could win the cup. I know he took the League Cup very seriously, and so I think he'll be saying to them, look, he he wants to lay down a marker during his time at Leicester that this is a club where you can come and win some trophies. So I think he'll take it seriously. So a good slot Sunday four o'clock. We'll all be ready and waiting. Indeed, and that'll be followed by Newcastle's clash with Man City, a City team who may be focusing on that more than their Thursday night game with Chelsea. Newcastle, though, in almost uncharted territories here, uh, looking to reach the semi-finals for the first time in 15 years, and they do seem to have come back from the restart. Hey, Benji, you were watching them. And I think Steve Bruce deserves quite a lot of credit, really. They're certainly out of the relegation battle now, I think, and... Yeah, why not go for it? I mean, the sadness here is that ultimately they're playing Man City and they'd have hoped that, you know, a home game at St. James's Park would give them a lot more chance of beating City than under normal circumstances with the fans around them. So, yeah, um, you can't see much further than a Man City win. But, yeah, Newcastle looking really good. And ultimately, St. Maximin is one of those players that he could win the game himself. So, let's see. Let's see. Duncan, Sheffield United, Arsenal, four-time cup winners against 13-time cup winners. Yeah, I mean, you can basically make an argument for seven of the eight teams winning the Cup this year that would be quite a romantic story, um, other than Man City, just because they're this kind of death star of domestic Cup that just, you know, destroy everything in their path. Um, you know, if they win against Newcastle, they'll be only the sixth team to ever win 10 consecutive FA Cup games and only the third since the turn of the 20th century. So they've already, you know, won the League Cup for the 400th year in a row this year. So, I mean, I, you know, I'd, it'd be great to see a Sheffield United or a Norwich get to the final. It'd be amazing to see Newcastle get to the final um, and actually play well. Obviously, the, they've had recent ones in, in the 90s and not very good. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I kind of just hope for something a bit different, really. And I think 
you know, the FA Cup at this stage for most of those clubs represents a real kind of last chance saloon for this season. Um, so mm. I think hopefully it should be, ev- you know, it should be more kind of more on it and more exciting than, than it has been recently. Fingers crossed. Very good. Very shortly, we'll be touching on Wednesday night's action in Serie A, which was certainly eventful. Before that, though, let's check in with Lee Price of Paddy Power with Ben Green. Very much obliged, Jimbo Shalom listeners, and hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, there's FA Cup football to talk about. We'll get onto that in a moment, but first, let's start with the Midlands derby in the Premier League. It's Villa versus Wolves. What's going to happen here, please? Yeah, interesting to listen to the guys talk about this earlier. Start of a very tough run for Villa, which they need to take points from. I say need, that's if they want to stay up. Then again, this season there hasn't been a run of games which hasn't been difficult for them. It's 10-3 Villa win this one, or 5-2 they take a point. Wolves, on the other hand, are serious European candidates and we seriously fancy them here. They're 4-5. Next up, two sides that very much don't want to be spoken about in the relegation context are Watford and Southampton. They're up against each other. Give us some markets here, please. Hmm, not exactly a relegation six-point at this one, as both teams do look relatively safe, but Watford in particular could use a win. So maybe we'll call it a four-pointer. We make the Hornets ever so slight favourites at six to four, with Southampton priced at 17 to 10. The draw isn't much longer. We're properly wedging ourselves onto the fence here. That's priced to 23 to 10, and Danny Ings to score any time, as he's made a habit of doing so recently, is six to five. And finally, please humour me with an FA Cup accumulator. What are the odds, please, on Norwich, Sheffield United, Leicester, and Newcastle all getting through to the semi finals? Crikey, if it really is back, Ben, with your FA Cup accumulators. Here we go. Norwich to beat Manchester United is 9 to 2. Sheffield United to beat Arsenal is 9 to 5. Leicester to beat Chelsea is 13 to 8. And the one that's really boosting up the value, Newcastle to beat Manchester City is 14 to 1. Combine that all together and you get a price of 605 to 1. It's a long shot. However, we do offer Acker Insurance at Paddy Power, where if one leg of your fourfold lets you down, you do get your money back as a free bet. There are TNCs that do apply, so do look them up. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, joining us on the line is James Horncastle. Hola, James. ¿Qué tal? Uh, bastante bien, thank you. Incredible scenes this Wednesday in City, which you're joining us to talk about, not least uh, the big clash between Atalanta and Lazio. In favor of the squadra di casa, parte il cross del Papu Gomez, il colpo di testa e gol del vantaggio dell'Atalanta. Esattamente al 35esimo minuto. Well, it was a uh, una vera notte magica, as they say, taking you back to the kind of glory nights of the uh, of Italian '90. Um, because what we got was uh, quite a spectacle in uh, in Bergamo with uh, Atlanta doing Atlanta things, which is not going only one goal down, but going two goals down and looking down but out, but they're never out and coming back to win in uh, in thrilling fashion in the second half and deservedly so as well. And you know, obviously, this has ramifications for the title race because Lazio were just one point behind Juventus going into this match day. Juventus won in Bologna. On, uh, on Monday night, so the gap is now four points. But uh, I don't think it's over yet either. I think Lazio played very well first half hour. Remember, this was their first game back um, in the restart. Atlanta had already played at the weekend, were maybe slightly fitter, a little better Lazio without Lucas Leiva, Senad Lulic, their captain, and they 
lost three players to injury quite quickly uh, in this game as well. And uh, Lazio have still got to go to Turin to play Juventus. So, uh, you know, they could close that gap back down to one point. Um, so, yeah, it was a real kind of uh, proper spectacle tonight. Um, just a, a reminder, if, I mean, we already got it at the weekend in the game that Atlanta played against Sassuolo. A reminder of just how exciting this team is to watch. Well, speaking of Sassuolo, they had a pretty entertaining game themselves on Wednesday against Inter. Uh, in a fixture you describe as the most irrational game in Serie A history. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, in recent years, what we've got used to uh, Sassuolo beating Inter and then Inter beating Sassuolo by seven goals and doing that on a couple of occasions. And just everything goes out the window when these two sides play. And that was, again, very much true tonight uh, when Inter played really well against Sampdoria at the weekend and looked like they'd spent uh, their sort of mini pre-season getting up to speed on the content were back ready to maybe push themselves back into title contention and Sassuolo got in front into then kind of didn't really deserve to not only equalize but but go into the break in the lead and then just all hell broke loose late in the second half with uh, some disastrous um, defending from Ashley Young who gave away a penalty we saw Roberto Gagliardini um, miss, well, put in his own candidacy for a, a miss of the season. Um, and just when Inter had got back in front 3-2 just a few minutes ago, what did they do? They concede at the other end again. And uh, I think that's a major dent in their in their aspirations to, as I say, make up ground on on, uh, on Lazio, who obviously um, would lose later in the evening. Um, but Antonio Conte furious afterwards. I mean, he was furious after the Coppa Italia semi-final against Napoli. When they wasted chances um, to get to the final, they could have killed the game against Sampdoria earlier at the weekend. They didn't do that, but they still won. And again tonight, they had the chances to win the game. They didn't do it. And uh, I think Conte tearing his hair out enough to need another hair transplant. Crikey. James Horncastle, many thanks. Pleasure. Well, there's been loads of action in La Liga as well. And coming up this weekend, it's the final round of the Bundesliga with one Champions League place and the relegation picture to be decided. I'm going to be on the air with that Raphael Honigstein from 2 o'clock on Saturday with all the action as it happens. And then, excitingly, next week we are reintroducing our European edition of the Totally Football Show and Raphael will be there to round up what happened uh, on Saturday just in case you missed any of the nuances and we'll also get the latest uh, on the state of play in La Liga and Serie A, but not Liga, of course, because they didn't turn up. Uh, in the meantime, that's it for today's Totally Football Show. Uh, many, many thanks to Hugh and Duncan and Benji. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. We'll be back Sunday night, unless, of course, someone wins the title in the meanwhile. But, listener, until we speak to you next, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.